Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. Everything made by man is subject to error. And that includes all judicial systems. But the test of a system is whether it recognizes its mistakes and then corrects them. Nobody wants to admit uh, that they were wrong and to suffer the consequences. But really, that's kind of what it takes. Otherwise, it becomes an acceptable part of the injustice system. The only way it's going to change is by people who are involved or are taking it personally step up and say, uh, this cannot continue without my involvement. How can I turn a blind eye to somebody, what what is Mr. Soaring or whoever, it doesn't matter who he is. Mm -hmm. If I'm that much involved in it and then 30 years down the road, it comes out to where it can be proven that he is not guilty and wasn't involved in it, how can I turn a blind eye to that and and live with myself? I just, I can't do that. All of us are required to do that. And we are compromised when we allow um, others that we know are complacent uh, in the system to, to go along and to get along. Welcome to The Truth About True Crime. I'm Amanda Knox. This season, I'm looking into the Sundance Now docuseries Killing for Love about the 1985 double homicide of Derek and Nancy Hasem and the ongoing 33-year wrongful imprisonment of Jens Suring by the state of Virginia. It's a case that has chilling echoes of my own, not just in the details of the murder, but in Jens's plight. In many ways, he's the version of me who never got freed. To date, Jens has exhausted all his appeals. He's been denied parole 14 times in a row. And now, his only hope of release rests with a pardon petition to the governor of Virginia. A petition that's been dragging on painfully long. So far, we've looked at three quote-unquote suspects in the crime of Jens Sering's wrongful imprisonment. Jens, the authorities, media, and citizens of Bedford County, and Elizabeth. We have one more suspect to consider, us. 
Baked into the foundation of our country is the idea we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this right is protected by a government that is answerable to us, and by a justice system that relies on the presumption of innocence, reasonable doubt, the right to an attorney, unanimous juries, and appeals. Those protections against the state are essential. But our justice system also has one little flaw. It was built by us, and it's implemented by us. And that means that all our faults and flaws and blind spots shape it. We determine how frequently and how badly the system makes mistakes, and the difficulty of correcting those mistakes. Why is Yen Suring, an innocent man, still in prison? This episode, we'll be looking at the structural incentives, the red tape, the bureaucratic obstacles, the politics and ego, and our own psychological blocks that get in the way of justice. Like little papers in this huge case. Like, oh my God, Maybe there's more there that they don't want to have to study. Only a few years. Trying to create an alibi for this law and corruption. Jens's role in his own wrongful conviction largely rests on his false confession, his lies. Many people attribute malicious personal intent to Jens's decision to lie to the police. But when we evaluate others, we tend to favor personality-based explanations. He lied because he's a dishonest person. And undervalue the role of context. Psychologists call this the fundamental attribution error. And Jens's context was a particularly forceful one. He refers to it as structural violence. The structural violence is when the structures of society compel you to do something against your will. Mm. And here, it was the threat of the death penalty. The state was going to kill my girlfriend. That's what compelled me to come up with this idea to take the rap for her. The fundamental attribution error is one of many cognitive biases that affect us all. When we looked at Bedford County, we saw confirmation bias in action, how the investigators sought out information that confirmed their preconceptions and ignored evidence that countered it. Another major cognitive bias that led to Jens's wrongful conviction is the anchoring bias, where the first piece of information we learn colors every piece of information we learn afterwards. Most people, myself included, learned who Jens was only after he was arrested, in the context of a murder trial. Jens was the accused, locked up. And as Martin Sheen says, Once you're in a lockup, you know, everybody assumes that you must have done something, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. You might be crying innocent from this, but you didn't get here by accident. So there's this assumed image that the public has of people who are incarcerated. This relates to the cognitive bias called reactive devaluation that labels our tendency to discount ideas that originate with our adversaries. In the courtroom, this leads prosecutors to ignore or write off evidence and theories put forward by the defense. That would be fine if prosecutors were supposed to be biased one-sided searchers for evidence of guilt, but ask any prosecutor what their job is, 
and you'll hear about the noble goal of finding the truth and only charging suspects you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt are guilty. But this cognitive bias isn't just a mental flaw that affects prosecutors. It affects all of us on the sidelines. We choose allegiances and devalue the arguments of the opposite team. And worse, the people who put them forward. I can tell you up front, I'm probably not the most popular man around here in this area with the <laughs> local, some of the local law enforcement, but that's, you know, it is what it is. Hmm. Uh, I stand by my convictions. And back in July of 1980, when I put the badge on and swore to doing my job, nobody, it didn't say anything about being in a popularity contest. So <laughs> I've gotten so, so many people coming to me and saying, Chuck, you know, we really appreciate what you're doing. And I said, well, you know, it, it just is what it is. I just feel like it's right. Um, but they're afraid to come out mm. in public about it because, one, a lot of them are afraid of retaliation from the sheriff's office down here mm. uh, or the court system, whatever it may be. I mean, just to hear them talk. But they, they're afraid to come out in public on it. Our cognitive biases aren't new discoveries. And we've done our best to build a system that acknowledges the possibility of error. We have rules of procedure to protect people like Jens against abuses and mistakes. And those procedures aren't easy to navigate. The best route to freedom for a wrongfully convicted person is factual evidence of their innocence. As ethical interrogation expert Andy Griffiths told me, I think it's very difficult to prove 100% innocence yeah. What you can show with a greater degree of certainty is whether the rules have not been followed. Now, in the UK, procedural innocence is a much bigger thing. You know, if the police don't follow the rules, that can make the conviction unsafe. Mm. But that, that distinction does not seem to apply in a lot of the, well, take Jens's case. I mean, there are so many procedural issues in Jens's case right now that I think it would be at the Court of Appeal for a retrial in the UK without any doubt whatsoever. For a closer look at Jens Sering's case, check out the six-part docuseries, Killing for Love, on Sundance Now. Download the app or visit SundanceNow.com and enter promo code TRUTH to sign up for a free 14-day trial. Factual innocence is sexy. On the other hand, we view procedural innocence with suspicion. No one ever gets off on a technicality to much fanfare. It's also grueling work. Sandy Hausman, who's taken a lot of calls from Jens, knows how much that pursuit has taken over his life. He has almost from day one in prison been campaigning and researching and doing everything he can think of to do to get himself out. He's like a businessman on the phone, you know. As soon as the prisoners get free time, he hits the telephones and the email and he's corresponding with people and trying to get out of there. And you can't really blame him. I mean, if indeed he is innocent, what else could you do? There are several different paths to procedural innocence or at least freedom for Jens. The first and most direct is the appeal process. Appeals only exist because we know that the people administering the process of justice inevitably make errors. The fact that this route to correcting mistakes exists is great. How we've chosen to structure the appeals process isn't. When an appellate court grants a new trial, 
it rarely happens in an entirely new court with fresh eyes and open minds. Instead, a defendant often faces the very same detectives, prosecutor, and judge who have their egos and reputations on the line. And of course, the local police have some pride in this case. They were made out to be heroes initially that they solved this heinous crime. So now to have their work questioned is embarrassing, to say the least. I mean, it's like pulling our teeth to get them to change their mind now. Even the evidence is plain right there in front of you. They're not going to change their mind because of the fact that they have a reputation they want to stick to. Mm. And it's, it's just really, it's, it's sad. The problem with having the same prosecutors and judges involved in a retrial is that we're all susceptible to the cognitive bias known as the backfire effect. It leads us to not only ignore evidence that counters our beliefs, but to strengthen our prior beliefs in reaction to disconfirming evidence. And in Jens's case, it seems like it's led the authorities to stand by some untenable positions, especially when it comes to the science, as DNA expert Tom McClintock told me. If there's science there to answer this or to support either side, then why would you not pursue it? We're not talking a lot of money. Looking back at it, I'm going, wow, um, we need to do better. Mm. And there's so much research now, if we would implement it, it wouldn't be very costly if we could get people to listen and not let their egos rule like many prosecutors do and people in law enforcement. We could change the way we do business and get the bad guys more frequently and convict the innocent less, Mm. in my opinion. And it's not just the science they're forced to ignore, but the logic of it all. Innocence Project board member Jason Flom had a memorable analogy. You could go to some of these people and hold up a a magic marker and be like, look, it's a magic marker. Mm -hmm. They would go, no, it's not, it's a giraffe. (laughs) And you go, no, no, because look, I'm holding it in my hand with two fingers and I can write with it and you could make colors. And and they go, no, 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 that's a giraffe. I told you 20 years ago that's a giraffe, so it's still a giraffe. When you cling to a 20-year-old belief in someone's guilt, despite new evidence of their innocence, it forces you into logical contortions. Which case I think I saw recently where, oh, it's a California case where the prosecutor said, yeah, we don't, we don't like to turn over the exculpatory evidence because then these, these people try to build innocence claims around that. And I'm sitting there going, huh? Well, well, you mean they're they're innocent, so they like to be called innocent? Is basically what you're saying, and you don't like that? Yeah, that's what, yeah, pretty much. It sounds crazy, but I get where they're coming from. Law enforcement is busy enough with current cases. Reopening old ones is an added burden. And so to conserve our limited resources, we've put rules in place to limit the number of cases that qualify for reexamination. Those rules are effective at lessening the burden, but are they just? They have something in the state called the 21-day rule, which means that if you find new evidence more than 21 days after sentencing, you cannot bring it into court. Unless it is a slam dunk, unless it's DNA that shows someone else committed the crime, you cannot get a new trial. You can't bring that to the attention of the court. After 21 days of your sentence, you're done. That's nothing. 
Yeah, I know it really is. But I mean, apparently at some point, um, I think it was Yen's father was cleaning out his dorm room and found these movie tickets that he had because he had been up in Washington um, trying to create an alibi for Elizabeth and bought movie tickets. And it was to films that he had mentioned. And I think she did not. I don't think she knew what was playing. <laughs> so, right. you know, they, they brought this to the attention of lawyers, and yet there was nothing to be done. That was not something that they could introduce to the court because of the 21-day rule. Mm. Wow. And even this new evidence, I think, that other men were at the crime scene doesn't in and of itself prove that Jens wasn't there. But, man, what a high bar that is. Right. <laughs> This 21-day rule is just one of the bureaucratic obstacles we've set up in the way of Jens securing his freedom. There are many aspects of the law that require defendants to object at key points if they want to appeal. For example, if you want to have an appeal on constitutional grounds, you have to object when those violations happen in court. And Yen's attorney was from Michigan, did not know Virginia law, and apparently made a number of mistakes in that vein. The guy who testified about the bloody sock print was actually a tire track expert. That surely should have been challenged and was not. And then when appeals were attempted, the grounds for appeal were not there. It wasn't that things didn't go wrong in that first trial. It was that for technical reasons, a higher court could not consider the case. In any event, um, he's he's been at this for a long time. And of course, initially he had appeals and he had lawyers who were working with him. So that was the focus of his attention. But eventually the appeals were exhausted. And that's when, fortunately, the technology had really gotten up to speed and he was able to find... DNA samples in his file that could be looked at again. And that was really the big breakthrough. The first thing that that he was able to establish is that there was no forensic evidence against him. You know, an analysis of all the blood samples in that folder, none of them were stirring. But with his appeals exhausted, the lightning bolt of that DNA result didn't strike down his conviction and lead to his freedom or even a new trial. Jens had to place his hope elsewhere, and the possibility of parole was the next best thing. It wouldn't clear his name, but it could at least set him free after three decades in prison. But like every other element of the system, which is built around our cognitive biases, the parole system too was stacked against Jens. There have been sort of catch-22s at many places in this case. Most recently uh, was my understanding that the parole board was not going to consider Jens for parole because he hadn't admitted his guilt and said he was sorry, that they like to hear remorse. But of course, if you didn't commit the crime, you can't apologize. This was extremely frustrating for Jens's post-conviction attorney, Gail Marshall. We were sitting there and giving our... Feel, uh, and the parole commissioner fell asleep. But my problem with the parole board is, well, several. What are their criteria? Because they don't seem to be going by the criteria that the statute says. I don't think Virginia's playing by its own rules. This is a man who's eligible for parole. He's been behind bars for nearly 30 years in Virginia, 
He's been a model prisoner. He's written 10 books. He's worked with other inmates. He had a, a meditation group going at one point. My personal feeling is that if you look at the guidelines for paroling people, Jens is a prime candidate. The likelihood of him doing anything wrong is small. Mm-hmm. And most critically, he will immediately be sent back to Germany. And Germany wants him. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's the obvious thing to do. Otherwise, you have the taxpayers of Virginia shelling out $30,000 a year to keep this guy in prison. And there seems mm-hmm. no public safety need to do that. Sandy Hausman is getting at another common cognitive bias that has affected Jens's case. It's called surrogation, and it's our tendency to confuse a strategic goal with the measures meant to achieve it. In this case, we've set up a parole system to keep society safe, and a set of rules to ensure that only people rehabilitated and ready to re-enter society are allowed back in. But as Gail and Sandy point out, an innocent person wouldn't show remorse, and Jens isn't even going to re-enter Virginia society. So when the parole board isn't ignoring its own guidelines, it's treating the rules of the system as more important than the goal that the rules are meant to achieve. So with all his appeals exhausted and facing a parole board that won't play by its own rules, a board which has denied him 14 times in a row, Jens's last hope for freedom is a pardon petition. For the last two and a half years, I've been struggling against Virginia again over this pardon process. At one point, former Governor Terry McAuliffe seemed ready to grant Jens his pardon. I thought I was about to go home, mm. and I did make plans, and, and I did have hopes for myself. Mm. And then he didn't, and um, turned my case over to his successor, the current governor of Virginia. Having literally been on the doorstep with his bags packed, you know, ready to go back to Germany and then have it, uh, have the door slammed back in his face is, uh, you know, I mean, I've heard variations of that where, where people have had their last minute twists in court. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've never heard of a gubernatorial or presidential clemency being revoked. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I can't even, I can't even find the words for it. You know, I don't, I don't know what to hope for and what to believe anymore. Um, I think it's just as good a chance that a year from now, you and I will be doing a follow-up interview right here in this pod at Buckingham Correctional Center. Why has this pardon petition been taking so long to process? Reputation and politics. Hmm. I'll, I've said it from day one and I'll continue to say it. The other thing is you're dealing with a state that is politically divided. We have a Republican legislature, but our governors for the last two go-arounds have been Democrats. And I think in order to get anything done in the legislature, the Democrats have to get along with the Republicans and they don't want to rock the boat. And letting Yens out of prison might constitute rocking the boat because there are still a large contingent of people who believe Suring is guilty of a really awful crime. 
and they are crusading to keep him behind bars. I didn't realize that there was a, a, a discrepancy of feeling about Jens's guilt that fell along political party lines. I would say that's largely the case, and it's one of the reasons why the work of Chip Harding, the sheriff of Albemarle County, where Jens was in school, is so important because I don't know for a fact that Chip is a registered Republican, but he's certainly a law and order guy. He believes if you did the crime, you do the time. And to have him in Jens' corner is an important development. But despite his background and credentials, Chip Harding has been stymied by the system, too. Well, it's just been telephone calls and emails and letters, and it's just, we're not meeting with you, we don't have time, or we're not meeting with you, I don't want to talk about that case. Hmm. The only one down there that's met with us is the prosecutor, and he gave us an hour, and his eyes looked as big as saucers. And he said, really, I don't know the case. I was just a child when this case happened. Mm. And he looks like a good guy. So we said, all right, you know, we got a foothold. And then he gets back in touch and says, I met with the chief investigator, uh, Ricky Gardner, who was the lead investigator. And he says, we got the right guy. And it's in the hands of the governor now. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get involved with it. We'll let the governor's office do their thing. So they passed the buck. And the buck eventually stops with the governor. And Jens has been appealing to a string of governors. Well, um, I am fairly discouraged at the moment. I feel like we've had very good opportunities uh, with um, our elected officials to make the case. And the case, since I first became involved in it, has just gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. And I feel like that we have a good case. We have governors that are generally uh, aware of uh, the problems in the criminal justice system, but they're just not acting. Earlier today, the building sergeant came around. Um, she was doing a cell inspection. She came to my cell and uh, with my cell partner and asked us whether our toilet was working and whether our sink was working, and did we have any issues. So I said to the building sergeant, yeah, we want to go home. And then she said, well, you keep on telling the governor of Virginia that, and maybe one day he'll let you go. <laughs> so even she had heard about all this, right? Yeah. <laughs> Jens isn't the only one hounding the governor. The last 10 years, I've been sort of hounding the McAuliffe administration. Whenever Terry came to town, I would ask him about this case. He would see me coming. Amazing. <laughs> and the same with Northam. The first two times that Northam came to Charlottesville, he was, you know, speaking to the Chamber of Commerce and doing some other things. I couldn't get to him. They wouldn't allow him to talk to the media. Hmm. So the third time he came, I actually had written him a letter uh, asking for a sit-down interview and explaining some of my questions. And hmm. uh, that prompted not one but two calls of complaint to my boss, alleging that I was biased. And I wrote to them and said, well, if being in favor of justice is a bias, then I admit to it. But then I assume <laughs> that you all have the same bias. I mean, do, do any of us want innocent people behind bars? And with Governor Northam in particular, Jens's hopes of a pardon are in jeopardy. Ralph Northam was severely damaged politically. 
uh, by the scandal that involved his medical school yearbook and pictures of two men, one in blackface and the other wearing a KKK sheet. Now, if Ralph Northam survives this crisis, I would say he's going to be very cautious during his final three years in office. And I think it unlikely he's going to go out on a limb for Suring. Now, that said, I doubt very much if he would run for a higher office. I think he'll go back to the hospital where he was working. And maybe knowing that, he would feel toward the end of his administration like he should do the right thing. And I think, frankly, that the parole board is going to come out with a report. It's going to show what investigators have been saying all along about the Suring case. And that would surely give him cover to at least transfer Jens back to Germany. What do you think about the fact that Big political wins and even like super hyper personal, you know, gubernatorial scandals are having a like life or death effect on Jens. Like Jens's fate is all tied up with some guy's weird high school medical picture. Like why? Why has that become something in Jens's life story now? <laughs> like. Um, I guess it shows the weakness of our criminal justice system that politics can be a factor in cases and, and often is. You know, I think it's a it's a bad system in that respect, that there aren't enough legal protections for people like Jens, for people who are wrongfully convicted. There aren't enough mechanisms for bringing their cases back when they need to do that. And um, it's something that I hope Virginia will eventually deal with so that the political fates of various people like Ralph Northam don't influence the justice system. For now, with the system we have, the fates of politicians and their hopes for re-election, or even just political stability, can make or break Jens's struggle for freedom. But that's because politicians are ultimately answerable to voters, to us. If we were more comfortable as a society with overturning convictions, Jens's pardon petition wouldn't be political poison. So again, our psychological dispositions are standing in Jens's way. One part of that is a bias, especially in rural Virginia, towards authority. In some communities like Bedford County, you have a sort of inherent bias. It's a very conservative rural community. And I think there is a belief that for the most part, police get things right, prosecutors get things right. And surely if this man were convicted by a jury and exhausted all of his appeals, he must be guilty. I think that's the fundamental belief. Another fundamental bias we have is towards the original victim. It's something I call the single victim fallacy. You know that anyone who hears you say, I'm a victim, is going to throw back in your face, well, Derek and Nancy Hasem are victims, and I sympathize with you for that because I constantly have to face that. Anytime I try to defend myself or assert what is true in my case, I get thrown back in my face, well, you're not the real victim. As if right. that means that somehow I'm not a victim. It, it hurts. It hurts when something really horrible happens to you and everybody else is 
reaction is, yeah, but the real victims here are somebody else. Mm. And, and that sucks. And I, know, I know that feeling, so I, I know what you're talking about. And I, I'm, I'm sorry that you, you're going through that as well. And I'm sorry that, you know, for, for every wrongfully convicted person, that they're somehow considered less important, second class. Every obstacle standing in the way of Jens's freedom starts here, with the attitudes we as citizens hold about how the criminal justice system should function and what its goals should be. Everything else is built on that, for the political system responds to our emotional and irrational feelings. If we feel that wrongfully convicted people aren't real victims, then the lawmakers won't be incentivized to reform the appeals process and parole and pardon systems to make fixing our mistakes easier. Of course, you know, our system in America is so deeply flawed at so many levels, not least of which in the sentencing phase, right, where we're so far out of step with the rest of Western society. You know, it, it's a fact, you know, it's a fact that um, there's a certain way of thinking um, that still survives in certain parts of Virginia. That goes back to uh, the bad old days, you know? Acknowledging mistakes is not something they do real well around here. If we can't police ourselves and policing, I don't know, it's, it's difficult to ask the public to have total confidence in us, in my, in my opinion. Getting people out is too fucking hard, right? I mean, we do it, but it's so hard. So we need to prevent it on the front end. And that means we need to vote. We need to elect. It's just uh, unfortunate that we don't have a more sophisticated and a better educated public to consider all the facts when these things happen. When you zoom out to the big picture and ask why is Jens Suring still in prison, the most glaring suspect is us. We put him there, and we are keeping him there. I guess it really comes down to how you view the law and the criminal justice system. Are we about punishment or are we about rehabilitation? If we're about punishment, then maybe people who murder others need to be executed or kept in prison for life. But if we're truly about corrections, and it is called the Virginia Department of Corrections, then surely Jens is corrected and needs to be set free. Next time on The Truth About True Crime, we'll be looking at the cost we all pay when the system fails. But if you find yourself in that jury box, if you, even when you find yourself in that jury box, if you have a doubt, you have to vote to acquit mm. because it, the, the consequences are so dire. If you make that mistake, it's almost, it's almost undoable. Mm -hmm. It's un, unfixable. Uh, okay, we are all humans. We all make mistakes, yes, but the whole issue, the big goal must be we find out the truth. Mm-hmm. Not only to to spare you, Jens, to wrong conviction, but also to find a true murderer. The two men who left blood at the crime scene are still unidentified. And our failure to find them, our complacence with scapegoating Jens, affects everyone. The detectives, the families, 
Jens and his supporters, the state of Virginia, the trust in law enforcement, and even the stability of our democracy. It has also deeply affected me as I've gotten to know Jens and his struggle, which so hauntingly echoes my own. Our season finale is going to be heavy. Bring your tissues. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Sundance Now docuseries, Killing for Love, at SundanceNow.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.